Welcome to another edition of In The Zone. I am your host, Garrison Roy, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Gallo. Dr. Gallo, go ahead and give yourself a brief introduction and then, you know, what you did as a baseball player and then now what do you do in, into the zone of, uh, of baseball training and, and physical therapy? All right. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Ishmael Gallo. Actually, um, well, where do I start? You know, it's one of those where, like, it's a long history, you know? Uh, it really is. But I'll give you some like fresh just perspective on it is I actually grew up in Ontario, California. I, st- I started playing baseball since I was young, uh, youngest of seven kids. So, you know, I got beat up by my brothers all the time. <laughs> there you go. This is a good uh, environment. Talk about, uh, talk about adapt or die, right? Yeah. That's yeah. A- so um, I, it was interesting because the way I grew up, it was we never had training. We never had instruction. It was just us playing in the yard, playing outside. And, and I mean, I was a lefty hitter, so I was always a pretty good hitter growing up. Um, it was interesting. The way I think you'll find interesting is the way I trained was we lived next to the railroad tracks and I used to throw rocks up and hit them with a plastic bat. Okay. I, I did that. I mean, hours and hours of just throwing rocks up and hitting them with a plastic bat. Yeah. Hey, whatever works, right? That's uh, yeah. the best way you can get that skill down and. Like you said, you didn't have much instruction. You were just out there playing and your certain movement patterns and stuff just kind of emerged from going out and enjoying it and having a good time, which is really cool. Yeah, because it's interesting now because now when I look at the uh, at everybody, how they're training, and I go like, maybe you should throw some rocks up and start hitting them. Yeah, you, you definitely – oh, no, yeah, I definitely agree with that. You need a lot of more explorative type of training versus very – you know, the American side of training is like very rigid, very like, hey, do this for this amount of reps or this for this here, right? So it's like really almost too structured, in my opinion. Like, yeah, you could have like, I guess, a general theme, so to speak, of like how to go about things. But then it's like, where's the exploration there? There isn't really one there. Um, and in some programs, I'm just speaking in general, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, well, then from there, it's, it's, I basically was never really good at school. So growing up, I ended up dropping out of high school when I was 17. Well, actually, I say dropping out, but actually I got kicked out. Like one day I showed up <laughs> and they're like, you're no longer enrolled in this class. <laughs> like wow. it's time to go to continuation school, you know? So it's one of those where I went to continuation school. I, I really didn't like school at that point. Mm-hmm. So I ended up just dropping out totally for like a year and a half. I didn't do much until yeah. I got my GD. And then uh, one of my buddies came over and said, why don't you go try out for the JUCO down the street? And sure enough, I show up day one, and I, I'm overmatched. I'm, like, super thin, 140, but I can hit. Hey, so then, that's all that matters, as long as you can get on base, right? Oh, 1,000, you know, so I could <laughs> hit, I could catch the ball, and, and the coach loved me, and it was an old-school coach. It was Coach Masmanian, who okay. already passed away. I mean, but he, um, he was one of those coaches that always said, I'll play the best nine players, and I don't care where you came from. And that was, like, the perfect environment for me to just showcase my skills Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lo and behold, after that year, I got drafted by the Dodgers. And then 
Um, I did a draft and follow, and then a year later, I signed and I played five years of minor league baseball. That's uh, awesome. Had a pretty good career. Yeah, had a pretty good career. I mean, I, I hit the gold standard, which is what hit three hundred. Yeah. Um, but after that, then then that's when my education kind of kicked in. It was I was twenty five. I was out of baseball, working at a warehouse, and then I started to realize like this is not a I can't live this life. Right. Like I got to figure out what can I do. And luckily I was with a woman, which is my wife now that said, Oh, well just go to school and I'll go with you. Um, yeah. So it turns out well, or I was a straight A student. There you go. Yeah, exactly. As soon as I showed up, I, I just, day one, I said, I'm going to do the same thing I did in baseball. I'm going to show up, do my homework. I'm going to pay attention. And then little by little, the tests were easy. Um, I did about a semester, and then I took an anatomy course. And the anatomy course was 144 questions, and I think I only missed like two. Wow. So Yeah. So then the, the it was interesting because the anatomy instructor shows up, and he goes, guess who got the highest grade? And everybody's pointing at, you know, everybody else, and like, oh, this guy or that guy. And he's like, no. He's like, it's that little Mexican kid in the corner over there. <laughs> yeah 142 he's like the closest was like 118 or something you know uh so then after that he came up to me and he's like you should be something that has to do with either science the body he's like because i haven't really seen people that just take to it that quick uh so sure enough i wanted to be a p teacher so i was like i'll just be a p teacher coach mm-hmm. and then uh my junior year i realized that um i was like i'm not gonna coach like you know, it's, it's hard for me enough to, I played the game, but I was like, it just seemed like at that time I was more interested in just growing as far as like, I got to get my education as high as I go. Plus sure. there was no sure. jobs for P teachers. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everybody, I had buddies that were history, they were teaching history and then they were transferring over and just taking over all the P jobs. Hmm. So then I found, well, uh, what's next? So I said physical therapy, and little did I know it was going to be so hard. <laughs> you know, I thought it was going to be a smooth transition, uh, but it wasn't, you know. So then I ended up going to Loma Linda University and got a doctorate uh, three years after that. That's awesome. And so, yeah, one of our conversations we had before is like, hey, like, you're going to learn a lot of stuff in school, but whenever you get out into the real world, right? There's some things that you might have, or like you're, you may not go strictly by the books and you'll have more things, uh, a little bit more practical application, I guess. So like you, let's talk a little bit about how like textbook versus having actual experience, um, actually get, gets a little bit further than, you know, just some certain theories that you see. Oh, well, I'll tell you this. I remember my, my first year out after I got my doctorate, I felt like I'm ready to go. You know, I, I mean, they call it entry level, entry level doctorate, right? Where I go, like, yeah. I just skipped the entry level, by the way. I thought I was already a master once I graduated PT school. But then you start to realize that as you start to see patients, they go, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those where I was, I was doing everything by the textbook and I was literally giving every patient the same exercise, the same movement. And after uh, about a month of doing that, I said, I got to go back and, and really dig deep and kind of figure out, is there more training I could do? And that's when I ran into like a Kaiser has a residency that you can do for a year where they'll teach you movement. Um, they teach you evaluation skills, assessments. It's just like next level from getting your doctorate. That's cool. So I did that for a year. 
Yeah, I did that for a year. And it's very, I would almost call it a little bit of reductionist because you're looking at the movement in a big picture and then you're starting to break it down into parts. And then sure. you're breaking it down into a joint all the way down to like the smallest joint, like a facet joint in the in the spine. And you're going like, oh, if I can just fix that facet joint, then everything will be golden, you know? Mm-hmm. They call it uh, like snipering. Ah, like you're okay. sniping the problem, right? Rather than shotgunning it and, and creating this big approach, it's we're going to sniper it. And that's what I learned in the residency was I became a pretty good sniper. Mm-hmm. Is I would take a big problem, break it down, do my do my evaluation, do my objective measures, and then eventually get to one joint and then treat that joint, maximize the capacity of that joint, and then voila, bring it back out. And hopefully at that point, I, I knew some movement, so I, I knew that I had to bring it into the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But honestly, for me, after that year of training, I felt really confident. But that was in 2010. So 2011, 2012, I started to realize that like, hey, hold on, there's some limitations to this. Sure. Yeah. Well, do you think a lot of that is, you know, limitations maybe also kind of within the healthcare system itself? So like, say a guy has issues with his with his hand um, or he's getting numbness and tingling in his hand, but you know that it's maybe a little bit closer, like has actually something to do with the cervical spine that's causing some of those symptoms further down, right? I from what I understand, some healthcare is basically like, hey, you can only treat the hand and anything else you treat outside of that is, you know, additional stuff. But where the root cause is coming from is actually, you know, maybe a further. I believe to a certain extent, yeah, that's true. But luckily for me, I, I got into an organization where it's um, it's very free. We have a lot of freedom and autonomy as therapists to kind of treat what we see oh, good. and to treat where we feel is appropriate. Mm-hmm. versus what the doctor writes i know like outside in private clinics sometimes they're really limited by the referral or limited by what right. they could bill yeah that's yeah, that, I think that's, that's kind of probably what you're speaking about mm-hmm. but for me what the organization i got with was actually and that's what drew me to it was that we have so much autonomy as far as like if someone comes in for neck pain but i feel like it's coming from their hip it's very easy to get the doctor to go like hey it's their hip yeah uh, obviously that's an extreme example but that's one of those where you go like, hey, it's coming from another source. And yeah. here we have the autonomy to treat uh, what we see and not really limited by like, oh, I got to stick to the elbow or I got to stick to the mm-hmm. hand. Uh, and I think that's what in, in like 2013, 2014, I started to realize that like, let me look at this big picture. So then it was like I wasn't experimenting, but I was definitely going like I'm no longer going to go backwards. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, you're zooming out on, on everything, too. Right. You were yeah, exactly. hyperscope, so to speak, too much. You started to not necessarily shotgun, but you were, you know, zooming out a little bit further away and looking at everything in a in a bigger picture. Yeah, definitely. More like a bird's eye view, right? Of the, the whole situation and going like, okay, where can I come in? So then when I started working with athletes, I started to realize that like, all right, I'm gonna try to change the movement as it happens. Mm. And that's the approach. Uh, and if I have to go back down to like the small joint, I will. But it was always coming from that part going, I want to change the, the big movement. I want to change the neurological functioning of this person as they're doing it in the act, mm-hmm. uh, which is, as you know, extremely difficult to do. <laughs> oh, right. Sure. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things where like, hey, you might get it in more decontextualized or like more broken down into smaller pieces. But once you start to add 
the full puzzle together or like, you know, they're doing the full swing or they're doing the full delivery off the mound. It doesn't always seem to carry over. Right. So it's, it's like mm-hmm. trying to get that, that happy medium where it's like, Hey, you have it here. Where are we bridging the gap to where it's going to show up in the full delivery and, and then also show up under pressure in certain situations and things like that. Right. Because sometimes guys might be able to do it in a bullpen, but as soon as crap hits the fan and they're in games, under pressure, they go back to that old movement pattern. Skip ahead the next 60 seconds if you don't want to find out about a company I co-founded, Ink Sports Performance. So here's the scoop. At Ink Sports Performance, we get it. We were athletes ourselves, former college and professional pitchers. We were also perform- former college coaches as well. Rob and I, we don't do one-size-fits-all programs. We custom craft each training and throwing program and offer that one-on-one coaching support that you need where you're not just a number. We're all about that personal touch. We'll dive into your training videos, whip up some of the program designed to take you to your next level. Nothing cookie-cutter here. So if you, one of your friends, or maybe a player that you know is serious about competing at the next level, hit us up on our website, Give us a call, get that set up at inksportsperformance.com. And also, just a heads up, we're also very selective who we take, right? We only take a handful of dedicated athletes, and if you're not putting in the work, we'll have to say goodbye. So let's ink you in to the next level. Yeah, exactly. That's I think as a therapist, as a provider, that's the hardest thing to kind of Resemble because obviously I'm not I'm not working on a baseball field and I'm not working with fans and, and the whole environment that goes with getting out there, so it's difficult for me in a, in a clinical setting to take it to that degree. So there's definitely things that I've learned in the past and recently where I go like, okay, we can get close to that model where we're actually challenging them. Yep. But at the same time, I, I feel like the readiness of the patient or the player is where we got to meet them sometimes. Sure. No, absolutely. I find sometimes that these players are just overwhelmed with the information that's being thrown at them. And it's really hard for them to start to decipher like, okay, what do you want me to do with this? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's that overload of information, you know, cause we're in that in, in the age of information, so to speak. So they're probably researching a bunch of different stuff on, uh, on the internet, whether, or social media, and they're trying out a bunch of stuff. Right. And sometimes that does more harm than good, unfortunately, you know, but um, yeah, I think me as just being a coach and then you being more on the PT side of things, it's, it's really good to demystify all of that information and be like, Hey, let's just keep it simple and let's execute X, Y, and Z. And then we'll progress from there and not have to have them think about, you know, all the other steps after that, because that's, that's what our job's for. They're just going to have to focus on their current present situation or their, uh, whatever they need to execute for that day and move on. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, and then PTs in general, I think we also deal with people that are in pain. Mm, yeah. So for us, I, I think I want to say we get a bad rap sometimes as far as a profession, because they're like, Oh, PTs just do things that are like super easy. Like, why are you guys doing little, these little crunches with the towel and da 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 da, right? And then you go like, dude, because they're not able to accept that much load. 
mm-hmm. right? Because they're they're there's yeah, patients start somewhere. Yep. Exactly. This patient, their capacity to load their system right now is so sen- sensitive that you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Because if we overwhelm them with all this loading, then eventually it has a detrimental effect to their neuromuscular system. Yep. So working from that scope, I think I also noticed that sometimes PTs, we get stuck in that. I call it referral bias, right? Mm-hmm. Where all of a sudden when you're dealing with somebody who's not in pain, like you're starting to do the interventions that you do for people that are in pain. Oh yeah, sure. And there, yeah, there's definitely, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily their fault. They're just stuck in that same like repetitive, you know, I guess what's the right word, just way of uh, their methods on how they do that. And then they get a wrench thrown in and they're like, Oh, Hey, this guy is a completely different situation, not in pain or not having to do this or, Hey, instead of having a bunch of, um, you know, athletes. Now you have someone who's more gin pop or vice versa, more gin pop. Now you have someone who needs to be prepared a little bit more before they're like, you know, quote unquote, fully cleared. They're two totally different dynamics there. Yeah. 100. I think that's where, where sometimes if you don't understand that bias as a, as a provider or as a, a, as a instructor, then sometimes you got to take a step back from your own clinical reasoning or the reasoning that you have. Mm-hmm. And then realize that the population you're dealing with. Yeah. And that if it's a different population or it's a different need for the patient um, or for the player, then you're going to have to step back and kind of remove some of your biases as far as how you treat and really dive into some of the details of what the player needs. And I, I feel like sometimes, even for myself, I speak for myself, is sometimes you forget. Trust me. Oh, sure. Yeah. Trust me. When I first started working with athletes that were not in pain, I was going like, oh, you know, like this little clamshell and do this little movement and do that joint and stretch a hamstring, right? Oh, they just do all these things. And then I started to realize like, hold on, man. I have somebody here who's like just fertilized for movement. They're not in pain. They're Like we can push them so much further, so much quicker than the patients that I'm used to, which is usually mm-hmm. rehabbing like a, either an injury or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's an exciting time right now to actually be in this space because I, I feel like we're working our way out of that reductionist kind of way of evaluating and, and treating and that mechanical like way of just seeing the, the player mm-hmm. and really working into more of the neurological and, and kind of tapping into like these neurological, I call them neurological hacks yeah. because um, it's one of those where you can get a lot very quickly. Yep. Yep. Well, and you're getting things like, like you said, like not just one joint, you're getting multiple joints coupled together to where they're working, how they would whenever they're actually doing the swing or the throw or whatever activity it is. Right. Like you want those to start to work together as quickly as possible. Cause if you only train them, you know, individually, then they're going to learn how to operate like that only, you know, in isolation and not adding that context that you need. Um, you know, whether it's in sport or in, you know, just normal daily life, situational stuff, um, certain movement patterns, but yeah, like to your point, circling back the just constantly like checking yourself and making sure you're not doing, you know, some of the same stuff over and over questioning, like, Hey, is this the right move for this guy? For me, it's like, Hey, do I always want to correct a guy's arm action? So to speak, not always, right. Like gotten away from, only given arm action drills or things like that. It's something where it's like, Hey, maybe a lot of this is 
coming from the pelvis or coming from the lower half and that's causing compensations further up right so that's part of the the zooming out thing that you know i try to constantly question myself with is like hey like okay where is this actually coming from what's the the root cause not just yeah hey he's having forearm pain because of you know x like his his arms yanking out to the side or he has early external rotation like i could zoom in on that and focus on that give him a bunch of throwing drills but a lot of that could be just from him having you know a jumpy back leg if he works on actually hinging and then that might clean up too you never really know yeah but garrison just think about it this way right unfold what you just said there right yeah is how much like how much information do you need to know to be able to look at it from that aspect, right? You have to know how the hip works. You have to know how the thoracic works. You have to know how your abdominals work. You have to know how the shoulder works. You got to know how the scapula works. You got to know so much information to be able to take that bird's eye view and kind of zoom out to be able to actually even get to that point. So I think sometimes we miss out on like the reductionist did show us how every joint works. Sure. Right. Capacity of every joint and the capacity of the, of that system itself. Cause I mean, think about movement patterns, right? Movement patterns are movement patterns within movement patterns, within movement patterns, within movement patterns. And you just, yeah. how low are you going to go to it? Right. So what I find now is that, that like a lot of people are just jumping to what you just said, which is like, Oh, this is the cause. And you're going like, well, hold on, man. You just jump like 10 joints away. And yeah. then you're going, like, how did we just get there? Right. I mean, there's, there's, for me, there's a knowledge base that you need to develop. Mm-hmm. anybody anybody anything you do you yep. got to be able to develop a knowledge base before you really start to take this whole like i want to say systems approach but before you start jumping too far ahead from what is locally going on yeah yeah for sure you know, and, it, and, it's, and it's one of those that some of that just comes from textbooks and going like okay what do these joints do on the minuscule level mm-hmm. and then being able to work and zoom out from there yep no, yeah, you're spot on, spot on there. I think maybe going from, I guess it's it's really dependent on the situation, but let's say, for example, an elbow, right? You focus in on the elbow or the forearm flexor or wherever the pain is, right? And then you zoom out and you're like, okay, the next couple joints is either wrist or shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. And then, okay, how do these three interact? And then you're drawn to the shoulder and you're like, oh, hey, Actually, there's something going on with the subscap that could be causing some of this, right? So then you're slowly zooming out a little bit, but you're not like, you know, going from like zoom in to, you know, 50% and then all the way back to 100% full view, right? It's like 50, 65, 75, right? And so I think obviously, depending on that situation, like I said, there's certain checkpoints, I guess, that you probably have to hit as you're starting to move and progress towards that more systems approach. Yeah. You know, what's cool there. You just described like 20 years of therapy, physical therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Because trust me, when I first started, we were just looking at like the elbow and going like, we got to fix the elbow. Yeah. And then some like astute physical therapist was like, dude, like the shoulder blade has a lot to do with it too. Mm -hmm. And it was like 10, 15 years ago. And then they're going like, hey, what about this? Uh, uh, the thoracic has something to do with it. Yeah. And then slowly we start to work our way into, okay, hold on the hip, the ankle, you know? And, and I think at least for me now, it's just an exciting time because 
I'm starting to look at it as far as for me as a provider now, as movement pattern to movement pattern. So I'm really zoomed out now. Mm-hmm. I'm really going into, okay, how do, how do we transition from one movement pattern to the next movement pattern? And I mean, and I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but on Twitter, I'm always talking about flow. And yep. people are, I've even had some messages of people going like, what is flow, right? You keep talking about it. And, and it's one of those that I think that's the next level that we need to take it to. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the, the, what's the right word I'm looking for here? It's the, the congruency or the, the, you said flow or fluid movement, right? Everything working together seamlessly versus like rigid, jerky, right? Like really abrupt uh, movement patterns. And you can even see it too, um, where, you know, we talk about like intent based, uh, whether it's through a swing or a pitch, like sometimes that intent is way too early and it disrupts the flow of how everything's supposed to move. Uh, so what's a, what's an example? I know you mostly work with hitters. Um, what would be an example of lack of flow, uh, through, through a swing? Well, I think for me, uh, I mean, it, that's a tricky one because there's so much that you can do to sure. disrupt flow. And that's exactly what the pitcher's trying to do. Yep. Right. Is they're trying to disrupt your flow. Like, um, for me, I feel like the swing is one movement. Sure. It's as soon as you move and you're starting to get your rhythm and you're starting to load up and you're starting to gather and you're starting to get that front foot down and you're starting to initiate your swing. It's just, it should be one movement. There is no like, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and load. My load is one movement. My, um, my toe hitting the front or landing on the front foot is my second movement. Mm-hmm. And Unfortunately, at least for me, I feel like, and, and I guess this is where I could go into hitting links. Is sure. yeah. in hitting links, I mean, I don't know, Garrison. I don't know if you ever created a system, but, but creating a system is one of those where you second guess yourself. Yeah. To the, no one ever gets it done because you're you're thinking about like, am I? I don't want to put this out there because I can't, I'm not capturing everybody. Yeah, well, so it's, it's not complete. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not complete. You second guess everything, but I feel like in hitting links, we broke it down into five movement patterns because. I think like, like I mentioned before, like the readiness of some hitters, sometimes that's where they're at. So if you're going to capture 80% or 50% of the population, you have to somewhat break it down into simpler uh, or like um, just easier concepts for people to understand and to kind of grasp and then work your way into the flow. Because ultimately for me, as we broke it down into five movement patterns that you work on, and you can work on it through drills. I mean, I think drills get a bad name, but it's one of those where it's more like learning environments, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I think shifting your perspective of it being instead of a drill where it has to be done only one particular way versus like, you know, exploring, like we talked about at the very beginning, right? Like, hey, this is like these certain two parts. How is your body going to organize and get that movement done, right? There's never... I guess necessarily like a right or wrong, but there's definitely a spectrum of like, Hey, this is inefficient or, and this is really efficient and try to lean them to co or you're encouraging them to have a little bit more of an efficient movement pattern. Yeah. Well, as you would know, is, is there's really no right way of doing hitting, mm-hmm. but there's definitely a wrong way. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's definitely you a wrong way where you go like you're, you're, you're going to struggle, dude. You're going to struggle if you got all these negative moves or if you got, you know, if you're lagging here or you're lagging there or, or if you're just not efficient, you're going to struggle. But yeah. there is not one way to be efficient because everybody has different capacity to move. So it's one of those. And that's what we struggle with. Right. Cookie cutter. 
everybody always says, oh, cookie cutter approach, you know, and, and even my system, our hitting link system has been called cookie cutter. And you go like, no, man, it, there's a lot of exploration that a hitter can do within our system. You yeah. know, they choose how, how they do that pattern. Every, every exercise we have, we go like, we're just like guiding you towards the movement, but you choose how efficient you want to be with it. And then we move on. And then we try to marry the, the biggest thing is at the end, we do try to marry everything into one flow, into one swing, into one movement. Yeah. Which is good. That's what, that's what you need to do is to bring it all together and then, you know, start adding more pieces of the game itself. Right. So, um, seeing a lot of guys be quote unquote, like cage heroes or like, you know, they're only seeing BP all the time and they do really well, but they stop there and then they try to jump right into games versus, you know, maybe adding certain situational counts or adding like, you know, trying to hit more off speed, more breaking walls, things like that to where they're a lot more challenged, similar to what it would be like. I call it like adding slices of the game, right? Like adding this in or adding ball strikes. Um, and then like, you know, Hey, if you get three strikes, like, Hey, see ya, like you're going to get another at bat later, but you know, you're not just going to stand and sit and hit in the cage reps after reps after reps, because it doesn't really emulate what it's going to be like in the game. So two things I wish I would have changed when I played professional baseball, right? Okay, yeah, let's hear this. One was just be more athletic, like develop my flows, develop my athleticism, develop my movement patterns, kind of train that aspect of it. Because, I mean, when I played was, I mean, my last year, I think, was 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. Well, back then, we were just doing gym exercises. I was bench pressing. I was, I hated leg day, so I was just doing squats and sumo squats. And, I mean, I don't think I did one movement pattern (laughs) It had to do with baseball other than like bulk up and get buff and sure. hopefully you just gain strength and then you're just going to transfer into the game. For the power, yeah. So that was one thing was can I can I develop more movement patterns that like the flow, right? I call them baseball flows now. I also have a, a movement system on hitting links. It's the hitting okay. links movement system where we work on just developing those movement patterns, developing the stability and mobility. But I'm also working on a second project, which is my baseball flows. Okay. Um, and then the second thing I wish I would have done was not be afraid to fail in the, in the cage. Mm. Cause I was like all about just hitting a thousand line drives off the back of the net mm-hmm. and whatever was the easiest thing for me to do, to be able to accomplish that, I would stick to it, which was usually soft toss and the T. Yep. So I found that if I did those, I was able to go like, okay, I could definitely, and then I would just mix it up line drive to right center, line drive to left center. And I mean, the crazy thing is I found success with that. Like, I, I mean, I faced guys that threw 97 and I never really struggled with velocity. I struggled with what everybody else struggles with, which is change-ups, deception, curveballs, yeah. sliders, not seeing, not paying attention to what the pitcher is doing. I mean, I struggled with all that, but I never struggled with velocity. Hmm. If a guy was throwing 97 and he was straight down the middle, I would thank you. Yeah. yeah, I hit that any day, all day. Even when I did T work, even when I did uh, soft toss, I could hit that. I could time a, I could time a jet. But throw me a changeup, throw me something that moves two, three inches, and it's just deceiving. Yeah, that's what you struggled with because eventually I just didn't have the movement solutions. Like I didn't say I had one swing, but I definitely had one swing that I preferred. 
True. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was definitely one swing where I was like, man, if I could just land on my front toe, get my heel down on time, and strain out my front leg, that's all me. But then guess what? When they throw me a changeup, that's really hard mm-hmm. to do. That's really hard to time and really hard to, like, stay calibrated to, like, get some power out of that swing. So basically yeah. for me, it was – and that's why I hit 300 because – I can still do that and hit a change-up line drive over the shortstop's head. So I can leak all the power I want and still get a hit. Yeah. Well, you you were able to kind of adjust, you know, as that pitch was coming, right? But was it the most efficient? Yeah, who knows? Maybe not. Um, but that's that's really interesting what you said there. You, you lost some of the movement solutions, if I'm saying that right, right? Like – Cause you were so committed to just having one swing. You didn't have other ways to go and like, you know, get the off speed away or the, the change up that's kind of tailing away from you other than just, you know, maybe the last little move of tossing your hands to the ball. Right. So that's really interesting. So if you, yeah, challenging yourself more, if you were to go back and like, you're still early professional days, challenging yourself is like throwing more off speed pitches and things like that. Or how else would you challenge yourself? to be willing to fail? Well, I would definitely do that. I would definitely figure out, okay, how can I use my front leg for adjustability? How can I, how can I find a different adjuster for my body? Mm-hmm. I can actually stay loaded still and still stay engaged in my connection with the ground where I could actually get some power out of those positions still. Yeah. Now the interesting thing for me was that, and this is comes to affordances, right? Is I already knew I only had one swing. Mm-hmm. But my approach was for that one swing. I didn't swing at anything out of the zone. I mean, I never chased anything. I actually picked the spot, which was like low and inside or like right down the middle. And those were my two spots where I was like, if you don't throw it in there, like I'm not swinging till you get two strikes on me. Yeah. So I just got really good at being like super stingy with the strike zone and just not leaving those two zones because I already knew that those were the two zones that I could really do damage. Yeah. Well, hey, those, if that was your intention and you stuck, that was your game plan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about like, hey, what's your approach? And that was your approach and you were successful at that. I think there's nothing really wrong with that. But yeah, diving into the into the affordances side of things, what, um, or I guess more attunements, right? So adjustments being more like uh, more macro, attunements like more uh, micro, right? Like mm-hmm. in the midst of doing things. You as a hitter, right? Like, what did you see yourself attuning to the most? And you said, you mentioned just to kind of reflect back, you said like noticing the pitcher, maybe either uh, tipping certain certain things or things like that. What else did you usually pick up on, um, either consciously or subconsciously, as you were going going through your at bat? Well, for me, I think what I really focused on was on the things that I could control. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as soon as I, I would see what the pitcher was doing with the guy in front of me, how the, the pitches were moving, I would c- create a game plan and go like, okay, this is, but my game plan really didn't vary too much. It was, let me get a low and inside pitch or right down the middle and I'm going to hammer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of those where sometimes if I, when I took a pitch, I really just looked at myself and said, okay, what did I do that pitch? Was I late? Was I on time? Was okay. what 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 in the environment right now that I did was that I could change as far as my load, as far as my transfer to kind of really get in tune with this pitcher, 
rather than what they were doing, I was more worried about what I was doing. Okay. Yeah. So like more yeah. of like responding, you know, so foul ball straight back or foul ball, you're late, foul ball yanked it, right? Like those type, those are the type yeah. of things that you use. Or for me, I always had an issue. Like my front, uh, my front side would always fly open on on like change ups or, or pitches like that, and I would always say, "Okay, I got to I got to stay uh, that front side's got to stay closed longer." Exactly. Yeah. I got to really start getting closed on that side and really emphasizing the fact of staying inside the ball and making those type of adjustments, rather than, I mean, I don't know. I guess everybody has a different way of looking at hitting. But sure. for me, I felt like if I focused too much on the pitcher, it would take me away from the the bat, which is weird. Yeah, no. For it sure. would almost give me like so much external focus. It almost seemed like I was a uh, like I was watching a movie. Yeah, or well, you or you would freeze, right? Like you would just be hitting, yeah. like, oh, hey. and then you totally forgot what you had to do. Yeah, I would lose my, and I don't know if that's just for me, but I would I would lose my spatial spatial awareness, where it made me seem like I was not in the batter's box. I was not grounded. It was like almost too much information coming in. Yeah. Or for me, it was more like, okay, let me just have like a soft focus. And yeah. Or just like a general it. area. Like, okay, I'm looking for the ball to come out of this, like, you know, yep. area. And like, if you see something come out, like that's where you're like, Oh, Hey, you see a ball hump up this way. That's probably a hanging curveball, or, you know, fastball or anything through that tunnel, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, but I mean, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about different things as far as like I focus on the cap, I focus on this, and I'm like, wow, I I never really focus on those things. I was really just soft focus until the ball was released, and it was like hyper focused. I mean, yeah, believe it or not, I mean, when's the last time I faced a, a pitcher? And I remember, I remember their fastball, which is weird. I faced Josh Beckett like in 1999, and I can remember his curveball and his fastball like right now. I still remember uh -huh. how it moves. I still remember how I jumped off his hand. I still remember how I was like I was laid on him twice, and then I got a line drive up the middle, figured him out eventually. And then yeah, it's one of those that, like, I don't know how you train that other than like a pitch library, or or how do we? Yeah, I, just having that. I self organized myself to pick up on those that that, that information from the environment I was put in, and yeah. for me. That seemed to work because, I mean, 20 years later to remember a fastball and a curveball, how much focus do you need in that moment to be able to remember how yeah. that moved, how it behaved, right? Um, Very intensive focus right there, for sure. Yeah, so I think, and I think there's, there's got, well, I mean, there's not, I know there's research that athletes are able to go from soft focus to hyper focus and, and then go back out of it again. So, I mean, just like with muscles, right? Like how we're able to get to like peak force quicker, relax quicker. Yeah, they, they found that with elite athletes. I, yeah. I feel like focus, it's similar in the sense of, because I feel like if you're too hyper-focused at the wrong time when you're hitting, you're going to burn out because you can only create that for such a split second. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really, really good point too. And I mean, I would say the same for pitchers, maybe not so much of like, you know, hyper-focus on everything, but like, Hey, step on the rubber, you come set, boom. Okay. Now you're like locked in, right. Or having that specific point in time where like, okay, that's like brings you back in. But after you let go of it, like, Hey, it's, it's out of your control. Like you said, control the controllables. And then it's at that point, it's just like reacting to the situation. So, um, 
yeah, no, this is all really good stuff. I like it. It's good. Well, I think for me, I, I think I bring a different perspective because I nerded out on baseball when I played and I loved it. And, and I mean, I mean, there's nothing better in life than to do something you love and something you've been working to since you were a kid mm-hmm. and to actually experience it at a professional level and to actually wake up one day, wake up every single day and go like, today's baseball day. Mm-hmm. I got to figure out baseball and you're just going like, this is awesome, man. So I got that perspective. I always tell people, even my patients, I go, I'm a baseball player first and then I'm a therapist second. Like there's no, I can't, I cannot undo baseball out of my brain. So everything, every time I see movement or I see somebody doing something, I always look at it from the ba- baseball sense of like, that makes no sense to me. That's funny. Well, yeah. And then I look at it from the, the therapist point where I go like, okay, let me bring some science into it. Let me figure out why, why doesn't it make sense to me? Mm. And, and honestly, I've been wrong sometimes. There's certain things that, that I see online or, or on Instagram where I go like, that makes no sense to me. And then I throw the science book at it and I go like, hold on, they're onto something. Mm-hmm. This is new information that's coming in where I have to start to really check, check myself as far as what I learned in baseball and what I learned through experience. And then sure. what I'm learning from other people. Cause I mean, I always like kid around saying that we are all giving a piece of, we're all giving a piece of this puzzle. Right. And the more we can start putting the pieces together and we all start to collaborate, the quicker this puzzle will come together. Yeah. And I feel like right now, I mean, especially, I mean, somebody, I just joined Twitter probably like a couple of months ago because I heard like so many bad things about it. Everybody, <laughs> all they do is fight. All they do is this. All they do is that. And I was like, I don't need that drama in my life. Yeah. But what I found is there's actually a lot of good people on Twitter and there's also a lot of good information. Oh yeah. It's definitely all there. It's uh, I'd, I'd say when some people let ego get in the way that's where you see a lot of the arguments and stuff like that but people who are more open to constructive conversation you know that i think is pretty invaluable because it's not only keeping yourself accountable and in check because you could be going down a a massive rabbit hole and maybe be way off they'll kind of nudge you back like hey okay like i see where you're going but like you're coming off the road here get back on the road and then then run with it so it's really, it's, it's, it's definitely good if you, as with any tool, right? Like if you use it appropriately, it's going to yield good results. If you use it inappropriately, you know, it could lead to, to poor results. So. Yeah, exactly, man. It's one of those where I also feel like it's just a mirror of where you're at also, right? It's, sure. it's one of those things that if you go out looking for it, you're going to find it on Twitter. But if you go out looking for the positive and looking for people who are on this same road, trying to figure out this puzzle, then you're going to run into a lot of good people uh that'll message you that'll send you things that uh little rabbit holes to go down into and and things Mm -hmm. like that and i mean uh, for me it's it's always one of those where i love new information but i also love the fundamentals yeah yeah and and love those concepts that are just staples from like way back when yeah so it's it's Uh, interesting to to come at it from those type of perspectives and really just finding authenticity in how you treat or how you instruct players and really doing your homework on figuring out your bias and figuring out your own preference to do, to doing things and actually figuring out what the player needs. I mean, I always go back to that every single time. Mm -hmm. The person in front of me is going to dictate which way we go. 
like we always always say like we expect our players to explore so much right and mm-hmm. be have these movement solutions and have these different ways of doing things and what else do you call it degeneracy and all these things right but then sometimes as providers or instructors we're stuck we, we don't expect ourselves to do that yeah right we come in with this bias of like i'm a movement guy or i'm a neuro guy or I'm a, a joint mobilization guy, or I'm a manual guy, or I'm a massage guy, or I'm this guy, right? Yeah, you pigeonhole yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I feel as as instructors, we got to start to really think, am I pigeonholed? And am I, do I really have to take myself out of my own preferences and get uncomfortable? Because trust me, it's uncomfortable to try to unlearn something that I worked so hard to learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how many years I put into the um, the reductionist approach, the mechanical approach. I put tons of years into learning that. Mm-hmm. And to now go like, hey, guess what? I, I'm thinking the opposite now. I'm thinking the other way. I'm not thinking zoom into the joint. I'm thinking zoom out to the patterns, zoom out to the flows, and really trying to come up with something that, at least for me, I feel like that's the next, that is like the next wave we need to figure out is how do we hack the neural system to where what I tried to do in 2012 was change the pattern as it was happening. Like, how do we, get, how do we get to there? Right. Cause I see a lot of people that, that, um, they are still like, they just figured out movement or they ran into it two, three years ago and they're heading where I was like 2010, which yeah. is a very natural organizational pattern. Right. Is if I don't understand something, especially in society, like in the United States, we're so reductionist just as a society. Yeah, as, as just breaking things down that I see a lot of people heading in that direction. And I'm trying to, like you mentioned, you see somebody steering off to the side and you're going, like, hey, hold on. We, we got to start to get into how do we fix the movement as it's happening? How do we fix? How do we provide that to the best of our ability with the limitations that we have? Yeah, oh, you're spot on. That's it. Awesome. Well, Doc, that's all I got for us on the episode today, but we appreciate you taking time out of your day and coming on and, and talking about this. So uh, work, you, you mentioned Twitter and, and your Instagram is where we linked up, but go ahead and uh, drop your, your Instagram and, and Twitter handles here to where people can find you. Uh, here we go, man. This is where I fail every time. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, I, I created them all separately. So on, on Twitter, okay. I think I'm at uh, Dr. Uh, Ishgayo, I-S-H-G-A-L-L-O. Um, on Instagram, I, I think I'm at Dr. Ishmael Gallo. Facebook, Dr. Ishmael Gallo. Mm-hmm. Hitting links, go to hitting links. So we're at, we have everything on hitting links. We have uh, Instagram, we're on Twitter. Yeah, we have a Facebook page. Usually yep. our Facebook pages where we post most of our stuff. Okay. So you might want to head there and then uh, look out for uh, baseball flows because I feel like that's going to be the next big thing as far Sounds as like training. Yeah. Sure. Oh yeah, because I mean, I hate to toot my own horn, but at a certain point, when you have a perspective of, I did it as a professional, and now I'm doing it as a doctor, then you got to start to think that maybe I'm thinking different. Maybe I should put something out um, that's different, that is really kind of coming in from a different angle. Because I can't do what you do, because you have your experiences, you have your everything you've done. Perspective. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. You have your perspective, and it's one of those things that for me. I go like, well, let me put my perspective out there. And it's it's not easy, but I'm willing to kind of, I would say, go through the fire to make sure it gets out there. And then um, 
we'll take it step by step. But I, I think this this podcast was actually a pretty good step as far as just getting the word going. Yeah. And I want to yeah. thank you for the opportunity. I mean, this is the first time I've done it. I cool. I usually end up talking too much. No, um, that's it. You're good. You're great. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those where and you know what? I'll figure it out just like anything else, Garrison. That's it. That's it. Awesome. We'll appreciate you guys tuning in and stay in the zone.